Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. But before we start reading, I want to make sure that we kind of get set up for what's going to happen through the rest of the book of Exodus. From this point on, the book of Exodus is primarily two things. There's going to be law given by God, regulations, a lot of details, and then instruction about the tabernacle. There are a few stories along the way. We're going to make sure we hit all of this stuff, but we go now, after the Ten Commandments, from a season of God saving his people from Egypt to God shaping his people. So God now is explaining, this is what life is going to look like among you. Because of the kind of God that I am, here's what your lives are going to look like. So that's the structure of what happens really through the rest of the book of Exodus. Our goal is going to be to make sure we hear the big ideas. We listen to the principles that God is putting across. We're going to read through it and we're going to make sense of it because there's a lot in these passages of Scripture that if we read through it by ourselves, it's going to be a little bit detailed, a little confusing. Some of the language is going to be a little off-putting to us, so we're going to have to make sense of those things, but we're going to listen to the big ideas the things that God is actually putting across. So for instance, the laws that God gives from now through the rest of the book of Exodus are primarily commentary on the Ten Commandments. There's a way of seeing these laws as a version of, I've given you this in the Ten Commandments, here's how this works out in your daily life. Here's how this becomes part of your legal structure, your economic structure, your family structure. So God is applying now the Ten Commandments to his people. And then there is a lot of space that is given over to the tabernacle, the details in the tabernacle on how to build the tabernacle. And what God is doing is he's emphasizing to his people how important his presence is among his people. So where we are right now, as we read this passage of scripture, we need to remember that we are with the people of Israel encamped around Mount Sinai And God is giving his law to his people and he is promising them his presence and his blessing. And all of these things are going to shape the kind of nation that they're going to be. And as we go through this passage, we're going to read some other complementary passages in the book of Deuteronomy. At one point in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of God, God has given you these laws and if you obey them and listen to them, you're going to become an example to the nations and they're going to look at you and they're going to watch your lives and they're going to say, it is amazing to us, and this is interesting to me, it's amazing to us how God can dwell so closely with his people. So we're going to watch this dynamic unfold, the symbiotic dynamic between the obedience of the people of God and the presence of God. This becomes enormously important to how the law works, why the law works the way that it does. So the laws are actually important to us as they serve to teach us what God cares about and what God wants our relationships to actually look like. So here's what we're going to pay attention to this morning. First of all, God protects the vulnerable. Now, you and I, if we're shaped by the biblical testimony and story, if we're shaped by the things that we've read and learned through Scripture and the life of Jesus Christ, this sounds straightforward to us. This sounds exactly right. 
that God protects the vulnerable. But we've got to remember that that's not the world that the Israelites live in. So when God puts this principle inside of his people, you and I inherit that. God is doing something new, and he's protecting people who otherwise would receive no social or economic or legal protection. So God protects the vulnerable becomes a really important part of what happens here. And this point is important for us to hear now because it becomes obscured as you and I read some of these passages. Some of these laws are hard for us to hear because of the language that we read in the English and what we associate with that language. So we have to keep these principles in mind that God is protecting the vulnerable. The second thing we'll make sure we make sense of this morning is that God wants justice among his people. God is a just God, so he needs his people to be just as well. People who live in justice with one another. And all of this is a reflection of the way God treats his people. His character and his nature now becomes what we live like and what we look like. And so we're back to this notion of God's presence is a part of his people as we obey him and we listen to his word. So God's law, especially the principles that are inside of God's law, still belong to us. They still shape us. And we'll be able to find in the New Testament, sometimes in some really fascinating and surprising ways, we'll be able to find how Christ himself, through what he teaches, through his life, through what the New Testament teaches us about living like Christians, is going to dovetail with what God has been putting inside of his people all the way back here in the book of Exodus. God wants justice among his people. So let's begin reading the passage. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. Heather asked me the other day, how far are you going to get? And uh, I told her I might actually end up doing over two chapters on Sunday morning. And she goes, that's what she did. <laughs> she goes, you can't do that. We will go faster than one verse at a time. We will. <laughs> two verses at a time. Yeah. It's, it's an exponential growth in our speed this morning. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, we're gonna pick up this morning where we left off so that we hear how the people of God have responded to the 10 commandments. As we listen to what Moses says, this is why you have been given the 10 commandments. And then we start listening to the laws themselves. Exodus 20, verse 18, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The presence of God actually descends upon the top of Mount Sinai, and Moses is the one who speaks with God. Before we got to the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 19, the people of God were warned, we're gonna set up a perimeter around the mountain. 
Because when God comes down, this becomes a holy place and you cannot get too close and your livestock cannot get too close. So they're warned about that. And then when God actually comes down, the text tells us that sure enough, the people sensed that. This is an overwhelming sense of the holiness and the glory and the power and the greatness of God. And they stand afar off. And I love that that moment. Moses, you talk to us. You talk to God and then you talk to us because if he talks to us, we're going to die. And Moses says, don't be afraid of God in that kind of way. Because all of this is about God speaking to you his law so that you may not sin. So that you may not live in a way that is contrary to the law and to the word of God. To sin against God is to break the law of God, to do the opposite of what he has told them. There's language in the Old Testament about, uh, about sinning that means to actually twist the nature of God's law. I've heard it, I've read it, but I'm going to turn it for my own purposes, where I'm going to turn it itself into sin. There's a way to twist out of the law of God, but we're breaking it. He says, God doesn't want his people to sin. He wants them to obey him and to live in holiness. People who live like God. We are intended by God to be set aside for the work of God, not for the work of this world or of the sin that is within us, but to be set aside for the work of God and not to be shaped by the world around us. So then God begins to give these laws now and talk to his people specifically. We're gonna pick it up in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 20. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make of yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall build it of you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield a tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray and close. But notice how immediately God begins to remind them of the Ten Commandments. He actually, right here, just reinforces a couple of them. Don't make any images of God, of the Lord your God. Don't make images of silver. Don't make images of gold to be alongside me or to be images that you use to worship me. You're not going to do that. You're going to build altars of sacrifice and devotion instead. You're not going to worship other gods than just me. So God immediately is applying this to his people, reminding them of the Ten Commandments and what it means to them. And then God gives them two directions about the altars themselves and directions that to us seem a little bit odd. It feels like they sort of come out of left field just a little bit. Don't carve the stones that you use when you build these altars, especially when you're wandering through the wilderness. And then don't make steps. You don't have to walk up to get to the altar lest any of your nakedness might be exposed. So at a point like this, you and I have to make sure that we are ready to hear these passages of Scripture 
the way that the Israelites would have heard it. We have to put ourselves in their ears. We have to put ourselves in their minds. We have to put ourselves in their shoes and the cultures around them. As God begins to unfold this legal code, the Israelites have lived amongst the Egyptians who have their own legal code, ways that you're going to worship the different gods, the way the altars are going to be built, the way that you're going to treat people, slaves and masters and women and children and foreigners. They're used to that that legal code. The further they go through the wilderness and end up in Canaan, there are other legal codes. There are a lot of ancient legal codes. And so God now is building his people according to his character and will. And in some ways, it is radically different than the laws that they would have known when they were slaves inside of Egypt. So we're gonna have to hear things the way that they do. And as we listen to the details, we're going to learn the principles what God continues to say to his people, even though we're not worried about steps and uncarved stone right now. So understanding this moment is actually gonna help us see how the rest of these laws and regulations work. These details highlight what God is saying to his people because ultimately we discover the way that Israel works through this kind of law, it's not about not using bricks. Eventually, Solomon is going to build a temple, and he's going to build a large altar, and they're going to build bricks and stones and use mortar, and they're going to build this gigantic temple where God's presence is actually going to come down. So what is God doing when he talks to his people? Israel, as they were slaves in Egypt, they spent their lives building elaborate temples and storehouses for the Egyptians. They lived in a land with these giant temples and with the pyramids themselves, and they had built these elaborate things for their pharaohs, for their kings, and for their queens, and for their pagan gods. And this is what they did for a living, is they built brick. And God says, what I'm going to ask of you now is that every time you stop and my place is there and my name is there, you're going to gather the stones that I put around you. You're going to put them together and that's going to be your altar. As simple as this is, God says, I will meet you there. If you are people of obedience, if you sacrifice to my name, you don't have to create an elaborate altar as simple as this is. I am with you. And then it is a universal issue from the Egyptians to the Greeks and the Romans in the New Testament. Pagan religions always connect debauched sexuality with temple worship. It's an issue that they have to deal with throughout the Old Testament, our temple prostitutes. It's an issue that the Apostle Paul has to deal with in the New Testament is temple prostitution. And so God says, we are going to be as far away from that as you can conceive. In fact, while you're in the wilderness, I'm not even gonna let you build stairs in case there's accidental nakedness near my altar. So God is just separating his people. He's setting up a different order with them. Even in these simple altars, you're going to be holy and I am going to be with you. And so much of what comes next makes even more sense when we understand it in this kind of context. That God is establishing laws that differ his people from the world around them. And so God, when he gives these altars, these, these regulations about altars, he just says, and I will come and bless you. That's the core of the passage. 
That's what God is really putting across when he gives this law and when you and I read this law. This is the heart of it. The promise that God will bless them and be with them if they obey his voice and they worship him alone. So the bottom line still applies to us. Worship God alone. Separate yourselves from the sin of the world around you and God will be with you. This is what God is putting across to his people. Now that they're in the middle of the wilderness, there's no more pyramids, there's no more temples, there are more, no more storehouses, God says, I will still be with you. It's a beautiful and powerful thing he does for his people in a moment like this. We're gonna jump now into Exodus chapter 21 as we kind of continue down this line of the laws that God gives his people. How many of you read ahead? The rest of you are in for an awkward couple of minutes. As we read Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse one. <clears throat> now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her child shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Again, let's pray and close. <clears throat> now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Reading a passage like this, especially in our ears, given the world that you and I know and the history that you and I know and feel, this can be awkward, this can be confusing, this can be a little bit difficult for us to work through. So there are several things we need to know about what we just read, both in the language and in the context of the people of Israel. What is God saying? What is God up to in a passage of scripture like this? First of all, the economy for them, work, making a living, is radically different than the economy that you and I live in. The sort of atmosphere of what it means to do work or to have a job or to get a job or to change jobs, radically different for you and me than the world that they live in. Work for them, providing for them, their family, their extended family, is completely tied to family and land. Your family, your tribe, the land that is given to you, the way you will work that land, you will harvest that land, you will grow on that land, you will ranch on that land. It's connected to the land and it's connected to your family. The land is given to tribes and to families. And so if anything in that structure breaks apart, if anything in the structure of the family falls apart, or if something happens to the land itself, there are no banks. You can't go to a third-party financial institution, get a loan to sort of float things until you get back on your feet, you find another job, you go down the street, you work for you know, Starbucks until you can get your uh, health insurance and put things back together again. You can't do that. So if something falls apart with work, the family or the land, the only real option you have is to work for your neighbor. 
is to work for someone else whose land is doing just fine, whose system where they, they work is actually strong and successful. So your best chance is to work off your debt or to work for someone else to put food on your table is to give yourself to someone else to work for them. The word slave is used several times in this passage of scripture. The Hebrew word for slave that's used in this passage is the Hebrew word ebed, E-B-E-D is the way we would put it in English letters, ebed. Now this is actually a very common word in the Old Testament. It has a broad context. It's used in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways it's used as much as it is anywhere else is to be used as worker or even as servant, not slave the way that we would think of it, but servant or worker. The same word abed is used often to describe Moses's relationship with God. So Moses will be described as the abed of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. So we don't imagine Moses chained to a wall inside of a ship in the Atlantic Ocean, and we think, oh, well, he was God's slave. That's not how we think of it. He is the servant of the Lord. His life has been given over to the things of God. He's going to obey God with his life and all he does. Moses is the servant of the Lord. The same word is used often when God describes the relationship between his people and himself that Israel is the ebed of the Lord. They are the servants of the Lord. The house of Jacob are the servants of the Lord. So what he wants from his people is a life in which they have, a life in which they obey their God. They've given themselves over to the law of God and this is how they are going to live. On top of that, as you continue through the Old Testament and as Moses talks to the people of God, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, he says stuff like this a lot. He says, I need you to remember that you were slaves in Egypt, so you are not allowed to treat anyone else the way that you were treated in Egypt. So they were bond slaves in Egypt. They had no freedom in Egypt. They were used by the Egyptians. That's what we would think of as slavery. So Moses says, you remember that. Don't treat others that way. So immediately we realize, just asking a couple of questions, looking at a little bit of the language in the context, when we read this passage of scripture, we're not talking about slavery the way that we would think of it. The way that we think of it in the history of our nation. The way that we would think of it as it is around the globe today. Do you guys know that there are more slaves on earth today than there have ever been in the history of humanity? This is something that is still alive and well in a lot, a lot of the world around us. So we're not talking about that kind of slavery. We're not talking about slavery the way the Israelites would have remembered it in Egypt. After all, they're not allowed to treat others that way. The closest concept that we have for this term would be something like bonded labor or indentured servitude. Someone who is bound to work for another person until their debt is paid off. Again, you can't pay back a bank uh, in interest for the debt that you have. You have to pay someone else. And because you don't have coins and paper money, you pay them in work and in labor. 
So you've given yourself or even family members to someone else to work for them to pay that off. This rule also applies in other parts of the Old Testament to thieves. If a thief is caught, they take the value of what is stolen and the way that is, that is restituted is through labor for someone else, working for somebody else. So this is how the economy works. This is what God is talking about. Someone who is bound to work for another in order to pay off debt. They just don't have any other options in their economy. But I know this still sounds harsh to our ears. And I know we read this, and some of us are thinking, well, why doesn't God just say slavery the way that we know of it is evil? It's just wrong. You can never do it. Why doesn't God just say that here? Go to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to skip ahead to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you know what God just did there? He just, in his law, abolished slavery. The way that we think of it. The way that we know of it inside of our past and history. To kidnap someone to groom them away from their family, to sell them into some version of labor slavery or sex slavery. The person who kidnaps them, the person who sells them, and the person who buys them should be put to death, God says. So God does, as a matter of fact, say, my people should never do this. This means that at every point in history when the people of God, Jews or Christians of any sort who have, who have engaged in this form of slavery have clearly broken the law of God. You don't do this to people. You were slaves, you're not gonna treat people this way. So what is God doing in the passage that we just read? What God does is he gives value to those who would otherwise lose their value, their social value. They would have fallen on difficult times and had no other way to pick themselves up but giving themselves over to labor for another person. And in other cultures, that just makes you a slave. Amongst the people of God, what that makes you is someone who works for someone else for a little while. It is really interesting when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free. So God is doing some radical things. The Sabbath principle applies. That in the seventh year, this individual gets to go free, and the text says, for nothing. If their debt is not fully paid off, that's okay. It's the seventh year, you're going to give them rest, they go free. If that thief stole from you and it's going to take more than seven years to pay it off, you know what? At the end of six years, you're going to let them go free because we will not become people of perpetual slavery. We're going to let people go free. Then you've got this text about marriage and release. He comes in single or he comes in married or he comes in single and he gets married the way that he stays, the way that he goes. Again, it sounds so curious to us. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 15 because there Moses expands on this law and he gives us a deeper sense of the way Israel would have applied this law and understood this law. And when Moses talks about the release of that slave that gets married, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 15, he tells the master, if that, if that slave, if that servant, if it's time for them to leave, you take from your household and from all of your goods and you give it to them liberally. You actually give them stuff. And scholars believe that that also means you give them the family that they've been married into. Now, part of the, part of the wrinkle inside of this is that when a master, um, you know, the, a slave inside of a master's household gets married, it's probably one of the master's daughters. So you've got this family thing going on as well. And then when the slave says, but you know what? Again, this is so interesting to us because we don't think this way. The servant says, you know what? I love my master. I love my family. This is actually a good situation for me. I'm going to stay. The law says, well, then the master then takes that servant before God. So you take them before the elders. You take them before uh, the temple, that sort of thing. And you, you, you take an all and you put it through their ear at the doorpost. I can still remember as a teenager when I'm first reading these laws, I still have that image in my head of some poor guy nailed to a door and there stands someone with a hammer and a nail, bang, 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 bang. Again, that's not what happened to them. They would actually put something in their ear. We might even call it a gauge or an awl, but it's a permanent reminder that what? Again, guys, when we listen to the law of God and what it's doing, we are shocked by the moral advance that God has for his people. When the slave says, when the servant says, I love my master, I love working here, the slave decides, the servant decides, I will stay here. In no other culture is that possible. Slaves are branded one way or another. They're given some sort of marking by the master and what that does is it says, this person belongs to me. So if the slave runs away, then we know who it belongs. It's like branding cattle. But God says, we're not going to do that. The decision belongs to the servant, not to the master. I will stay. Otherwise, the Sabbath principle applies. And God says, they get to go free and you bless them with everything inside of your household. So again, as interesting as this strikes us, we're watching God reshape his people and build a different kind of social justice among his people than what they are accustomed to in the world around them. Well, it gets even more easy as we keep reading chapter 21, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since she has broken, he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not excuse me, if he does not do those three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. It's another word for slave, but it is also another word in the Old Testament that is used often of Moses' relationship with God. So we're, again, we're in different territory than we would normally think of when you and I think of slavery. What's just happened in this passage of Scripture is that it describes arranged marriages. So it's not denigrating the daughter instead of the son. When it says that when uh, she is sold as a slave, 
She is sold as a servant. She shall, not, she shall not go out because what this is, is an arranged marriage. And while that is foreign to us, it is the most common form of marriage in human history until just a couple of minutes ago. In fact, there are a lot of people that you and I know that, uh, that are in our lives and our community have even been through this church and they are first or second generation immigrants and their story is, my parents were in arranged marriage. It's not that foreign to the world around us, it's just foreign to us. So when that happens inside of this culture, which would have been the normal way of putting together a marriage, the real question is, how do we protect the daughter? How do we protect a young woman, especially if things start going south? That's the question that's being answered in this passage of scripture. So here's what happens. Here's what happened in what we just read. The text says, God says, so if it doesn't work out, she needs to be able to go back home. And this is another moral advance for the age. Instead of tossing her out on the street, or instead of that master deciding, I'm going to make a little bit of money on her, and I'm going to sell her to foreigners, God says, you're not allowed to do that. You have to send her back home. The dowry reverses, and she goes back home. In shame and honor cultures, when a daughter's arranged marriage does not work out, it is common for that daughter to cause enough shame for her family that she's not allowed either place. And in their world, the only option for her now is prostitution. God says, we're not going to do that. She goes back home. So again, this is a moral advance in their world. She cannot be treated as a mistress or as a concubine. She has to be treated as a daughter in the home. So she's brought in as family and not as property. If the patriarch is polygamous, which is sin, but extremely common in the Old Testament. If he is polygamous, God says he cannot treat her as an inferior. And then finally, the text says, if he fails to do all of these things, he doesn't even get the dowry back. She goes home for free. So in their world, and the way that their world worked, the real question is, how do we protect this young lady? And God says, this is how we're going to protect this young lady. The text continues, chapter 21, verse 12. I told you it'd be more than one verse this morning. 21, verse 12. One of the characteristics of the laws over the next several chapters is that um, the topic changes often without warning. And it feels like it's just kind of a, a bunch of things uh, just kind of sort of stacked together. So verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. 
When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod that the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. <laughs> Again, so much to talk about. What God does in this passage of Scripture is he establishes the difference between murder and accidental killing. So there's intentional murder. You lie and wait for him. If you kill him, you shall die. If you murder someone, you shall die. If there's some sort of accident that is involved or it is unintentional, then we're going to actually go to the elders and we're going to deal with recompense and restitution. It's a different thing. So God is setting this up amongst his people. It is, again, significant in this passage that God talks about both men and women being harmed and that the same law applies to both of them. But the death penalty, capital punishment, is clear here in this passage and in other parts of the Old Testament. Justice, in many circumstances, Scripture tells us, can call for capital punishment, especially the case of murder. It's a clear violation of one of the Ten Commandments. God is talking about this is how these Ten Commandments work. If it's unintentional, God says, I will provide for him a place to flee. So this is another one of these Old Testament details. It's a lot of fun. So God in other places in the Old Testament law establishes what he calls cities of refuge. And if something like this happens and there's a murder or an accidental killing, you are then allowed by the law of God to literally run to one of these cities of refuge. And at that city of refuge, you are given an impartial trial. Isn't that interesting? You go before the elders of that city, you sit in the gate, and all the parties come together, and it's decided. It's decided. What happened? What are we going to do about this? So God even sets up, when he talks about a place to flee, this is an impartial jury, and God is establishing justice among his people. It is also important and good for us to hear, we talked about this briefly when we were going through the commandment, striking a mother and father actually allows the death penalty, cursing a mother or father. Remember one of the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and father, that it may go well for you in the land that I give you, and your days shall be long. So this is significant stuff to God. And another law, one of the things I enjoy about these Old Testament laws is how detailed to get and how they just sort of cover every one of these bases. You strike a man, he doesn't die, but he's injured, and when he gets up, he has to walk with a cane. God says, here's what you do. You pay for a lost work time, you pay workers' comp, and you pay his medical bills. You pay for his loss of time, and you're responsible for making sure that he gets healthy. So this is insurance in the ancient nation of Israel. So God, again, is taking care of all of the parties involved, especially those who have been harmed one way or another. And then it says again, if someone strikes his slave, and as I read through different scholars, Jewish and Christian scholars, they especially made a point about this particular law. This is another brand new idea in ancient law. 
In other ancient laws, masters had life and death authority over their servants and slaves. In the land of Israel, masters do not have life and death authority over those who work for them. Male or female were discovered later on, adult or children or whatever. So the master does not have that kind of power over their servants and their workers. When the text says that they're not allowed to do that because the slave or the servant is his money, some of your translations will actually use the word property, what we already know about this text, what we already know about what God is talking about, servants are not the same kind of property as an ox would be or a chair would be or something else would be. They are their master's ways of working the land of making their money. This is how that servant is paying back their debt. This is what God is putting across inside of this law. Again, as crazy as it sounds to our ears. A servant is a person with rights before God. So then God says, this is a person who has rights and value among us as well, just as much as everyone else. One more section of this scripture, and then we're going to start pulling some of this together. Exodus 20, 21, verse 22. <clears throat> when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay... Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and no one gets to barbecue it. And its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed upon him, then he shall give for him the redemption of his life, whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. These are great for right at the end of the night devotional readings, right? <clears throat> I feel blessed and I get to go to sleep now. At the center of the laws that we just read is this passage of scripture that says, but if there is harm, you'll give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, wound for wound, and on that goes. This is a law that's repeated a few other times inside of the Old Testament, so much so that it has its own kind of uh, commentary around it. This law in the Old Testament is called the law of retaliation. Uh, the fancy phrase for it is the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Uh, 
And some people over time, a lot of people over time, have had a very harsh reaction to this law. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Gandhi famously said, um, if we do life for life and eye for eye, that just leaves the, the, the world blind, right? So Gandhi was saying what, what God has to say here in the Old Testament is actually a horrible way of actually dealing with things. So what is God doing when he establishes this law? The word of God does not treat this law in a wooden, literal fashion. That if an eye goes out, you've got to put another eye out. If a tooth goes out, you have to pull somebody else's tooth. The word of God does not treat this that literally. In fact, to understand how the word of God treats this, all you have to do is read the very next verse. You don't have to dig through the book of Leviticus for a verse that explains what this one means, and nobody's ever heard of that verse in Leviticus. You just have to read the very next verse. The law of retaliation is about equality, and it's about proportionality. When something like this happens, you can do life for life. You can give eye for eye, but you can't do more. You can give tooth for tooth, but you can't do more. Again, think back. Israel is slaves in Egypt. Do you think that if one of them struck one of their taskmasters and knocked out one of his teeth, that taskmaster, do you think he would have had power over the life and death of that slave? Of course he would have. God says, you don't. There's a law of proportionality here. Life for life is the most. Tooth for tooth is the most. So capital punishment is allowed, but it's not necessary. In fact, that's how Christ comments on it in the New Testament. If an eye is put out, the most you can do is the same. But what will most likely happen is some form of payment or release from work. And that's exactly what the very next verse says. You let them go for free. They don't have to pay you anything else. They are not indebted to you anymore. They go for free because of the harm that you have done to them. That's exactly how the word of God treats this passage of scripture. It also levels out the playing field again. A master cannot harm their servant and get away with it. A servant cannot be killed if they knock out the tooth of their master. And so the laws around this like the ox, for instance, are a kind of, for example, way of describing how this law works. So let's talk about the ox for a minute. If an ox gores someone, <clears throat> there's a few things that can result from this. If it's an accident, well, we have to get rid of the ox because the ox may start doing this a lot. The ox has a propensity to do this. He wasn't properly tied up and pinned in. So we have to kill the ox and nobody benefits from it. We just stone this thing and we bury it and it's over. If it's happened before, one of two things happen. And this leads us to some really interesting stuff in the Old Testament. If this has happened before, one of two things happen. First of all, both the ox and the owner can be killed. Liability for behavior, for irresponsible behavior. The Old Testament is really clear on this kind of stuff. But there's something else that can happen, is that the owner can then pay a redemption price. Maybe there's a value or a price that instead of just stoning the owner, we actually deal with, we're gonna actually do this through a redemption price. For, the text says, male, female, child, or slave. 
and they redeem a life with an appropriate amount of money, decided upon by the harmed or the aggrieved parties. And then the text says, if it's a slave that died, you're going to redeem the life of that slave with 30 pieces of silver. Now again, our inclination is to say, well, that's because the slave's not worth anything. Why that is specific to the slave is because the temptation will be for the master to think the slave's not worth anything, so I won't pay anything for the life of a slave or a servant. God's law says the servant is worth, in fact, a lot, 30 pieces of silver. I don't care what you think about the value of that human being. God's law says they have value as much as everyone else, so this law makes sure that the servant has value placed on their life. And it's 30 pieces of silver. Just before the law of retaliation, we have the possible loss of a child in the womb. Two men are fighting, and probably one of the wives is trying to break them up or somehow gets accidentally caught inside of this scuffle and some sort of premature birth is caused or a miscarriage or abortion is caused. And so the law gives some guidelines for that. If the child is born and there's no real harm to either party, then the town elders along with the husband will, will agree on any form of payment that they think is appropriate for what has happened in this premature birth. But if there is harm, the text says, then you can take life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, this law of proportionality. So it's important that we see very early on as God is forming and shaping his people, and he says if a pregnant woman gets struck so that the child dies, the laws for every other human being apply to that unborn child. That child is the same as anyone else who is out of the womb. Scripture is abundantly clear from beginning to end that what is in the womb is life just as much as life outside the womb. And this is from the very beginning of God's dealings with his people. Again, this is a moral advance. This is the character of God. This is who he is being given to his people. And now they and we are being told by God, this is how you will live to reflect who I am and the way that I see people. So with all of these things that we've been reading, we've been trying to make sense of, again, friends, we understand that what's happening is that we have the Ten Commandments, so how now do we apply them? How do they make sense of our relationships with one another on every level, from a casual level to a legal level? How do we apply the Ten Commandments? How are we to understand the principles that God has given so that we give rights and value and justice to absolutely everybody, no matter what we think of them, no matter where they fit on whatever social scale you want to create, God is saying we're going to treat them the way that God sees them. This is how God is building his people. This is how he is building us. So a couple of thoughts about what's going on here. For the people of God, justice means living out God's righteousness and God's care. He says, I give you these laws because God does not want you to sin 
to live in a way that breaks the law of God. And we're watching the law of God give value to people who otherwise would have no value, no rights, no recompense. So the justice of God sees people a certain way, sees relationships a certain way. He says, now this is how you will do it. So justice among the people of God has everything to do with who God is and what his law is like. Whatever the world says about justice, or the phrase that the world likes to use is social justice, is completely the opposite of what you and I have just been reading. The way the world uses the phrase social justice is that they use it to immediately pick winners and losers. They use this phrase to immediately decide who has more value and who has less value. The further down that path of social justice you go, the more you listen to them, the more you watch them, the more you read them, the further down that path, the more you realize that they have decided that there are large swaths of the world who are wicked, horrible people who no longer deserve any rights whatsoever. And then there's a group of people who no matter what they do or no matter what they have done, they are always right, they are always valuable, and whatever they do is morally fine. The phrase social justice is a Trojan horse. Do you know what a Trojan horse is? Something's got snuck into the camp and you didn't know it. And it's the word social. It's the values that are placed inside of that word that get snuck into our culture and then it changes Everything and it immediately picks winners and losers. And what God is doing is exactly the opposite. It remains amazing to me how much open favoritism, how much open racism, how much open anti Semitism is alive and well in our world right now. It's incredible to me that six months ago, one month ago, The people who are calling for social justice, social justice, social justice are now many of the same people in the streets screaming for the end of the nation of Israel and the genocide of the Jews. How does that happen? Because of the Trojan horse that entered the camp. The ideology that's inside of the phrase social justice immediately picks who lives and who dies. And God is saying, you know what? The world always does this. The world is constantly picking who's important and who's unimportant. I'm going to tell you everyone is important. This is a radical difference that the church lives out. So friends, the Christian tradition stemming from the Old Testament is a revolution for the better for everybody. And our culture loses it at tremendous cost. The more the world loses these truths, the more the church needs to proclaim them and live them. Jesus Christ was once asked in one of his sermons by the righteous, and this is how his sermon went, how they paid attention to it. They were surprised that they are receiving the blessing of God in his eternity. And they say, how is it that we did all of these things to you And Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, this is the DNA of the child of God. 
This is the DNA of the church. This is the DNA of someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. You do it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. Later on in the New Testament, James is talking to a church. He's talking to a church that is actually living out a certain kind of partiality. They're allowing the rich and the wealthy to sit in important places and the poor, they get the back rows and all of you people would rather have the back rows and nobody's in the front rows here this morning. We, man, we just see things differently. The poor get the back rows because nobody wants to see them, no one wants to smell them, but we put the wealthy and the important in front and so James talks to this church and he says, in James chapter two, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If we treat each other differently because of our station in life, is you're sinning against God and you're breaking the law of God among us. The church, friends, sees things differently. Let me rephrase that. The church should see things differently than the rest of the world. So we see that the truth about God and justice among his people are necessarily linked. If we're missing justice, it's because we lack the truth of God amongst us. This is part of what Isaiah says. This is an incredible passage, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot answer. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Think about that last phrase. If you decide to turn your back on the evil of the world and walk in the righteousness of God, you've just put a target on your back. And Isaiah says so. If you turn from evil, you become prey now to the rest of the world. But how is it that justice is missing? How is it that all of this is turned upside down? And Isaiah, talking to the people of God, says, because truth is not out there among you in public. Truth is not heard and lived and proclaimed and understood. That's why we've lost the truth about who God is, so we've lost justice among us. So the people of God retain this, we proclaim this, we work on this, and we live this out by the grace and by the power of God. And then there's something else in this passage I think is important for us this morning. The people of God need to remember that we were once slaves. We read a passage of scripture like this, and for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, the initial inclination is to not associate ourselves with the servant or with the slave or with the one who's been downtrodden. But Moses is constantly reminding the people of God as he gives them these laws, you were once slaves. I need you to remember that. 
That's where you came from. That's who you were. And this is what we remember we were as we walk into the rest of this world. That's the cry of Moses through much of the law as he gives it to the people of Israel. Then on top of that, you and I have to remember, and this is part of the story of Exodus as it works its way through the rest of Scripture, the life of Jesus Christ and the New Testament, that we were slaves to sin until God sent his anointed one, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. We had no power to overcome the one who oppressed us in the sin that is in our lives, so it is by the power of God and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved and it's provocative, it's powerful, that when the Old Testament tells that story, it speaks of the coming of the Messiah by using the word slave. Hang on to that. Our witness to this world cannot be boasting and it cannot be arrogance, but humble thanksgiving for what God has done to people who did not deserve what God has done for them. So it turns out in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is often described as the servant of God. The word that was used as slave here in chapter 21, the word that is used of Moses in his relationship with God, the word that is used of Israel and their relationship with God is also a word that is used to describe the second member of the Trinity and his work on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant. It's the word for slave, ebed. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. First thing God talks to his people about the first set of laws he gives them in the Old Testament after he gives them the 10 is you take care of those who otherwise would be destroyed by the world around them. This is such an important concept to God that he says the way that you will be freed from your sin is that my son will come as a servant and he will give his life on your behalf so that you now may be saved. The price of the slave in Exodus chapter 21 was pegged at 30 pieces of silver. The blood money that was paid for Jesus Christ was 30 pieces of silver. Jesus says, this is who belongs to me. This is who belongs to me. I want to finish by reading from the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2, We've read Exodus, we've read Isaiah. I want to listen to Paul talking to the church about how all of this works. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the servant of God, does not make him someone weak. It makes him the conquering Savior, the King of Kings. Let's pray.